All right, I just thought it would be good for, for it's good for me to have things in a kind of an organized fashion. And when you're reading the scriptures, especially where we were reading, it just is, you know, every day it seems like there are two or three regime changes. And they go through those quickly. And so I thought we'd, you'd have this in there. As I've told you, a, a couple of people, this is a very scientific uh, evaluation system. The bads and the mostly bads and the kind of bads and the very bads and the wickeds and the mostly goods and the very best and the worst, all right? And so this will let you see. Now, there are a couple of things that ought to kind of jump out to you, and you probably saw this anyways when you were reading, but you can see it better in these things. And one is the difference in stability between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, There are oftentimes, while a king in the south, like see King Asa there rules from 911 to 871, and in that time there are five different kings in the north, and so you just see the uh, the turnover there. And you'll also notice, and I mentioned this the last week, that if you just look down the kings of Israel, um, it goes bad, 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 extra bad. Worst, bad, mostly bad, mostly bad, 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 bad. So, Gary, I got one up here. I got plenty up here. So, you'll notice in the northern kingdom, there are no good kings, right? The best you get is one that's mostly bad. You get a couple that are say they're not as bad as the ones that were before, right? Now, in the southern kingdom... You start out with mostly bad, but then you have Asa that's good. You have Jehoshaphat that's good. You got Joash that's mostly good. Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, um, Hezekiah, Josiah that are all good kings, right? So it's much more. Now you'll also notice there that once you get past Josiah before they take before the fall, it's bad, wicked, bad, bad. I mean, it's pretty consistent there. Okay. And I just thought you could have this and look over it, and I know that some of you will put it where you keep stuff like this and refer to it, and some of you will uh, discard of it. Some of it will pick up a couple from the seats when we uh, leave. Right, so uh, any any questions about that or comments about the chart? We'll get to the stories in a minute. But. And we also put out there uh, some new copies of the chronology, some of the, a couple people asked for that last week. That's out there. If you've misplaced that or you'd like to see that, I think it's out there. All right. Let's talk about the kings. Starting in 2 Kings 6, and we go all the way to 2 Kings, first part of 18. So what did you see in there? You remember the, the axe head floating, right? Yeah. That was, a, and you know, people, sometimes you when you think of stories disconnected, you think, what in the world does it matter if an axe head floats? But that was an important thing that they were doing, and they needed that axe head, and they didn't want to have to replace it. Uh, wasn't exactly, you know, on their expense account. So you chopped the chicken's head off. My father-in-law has just taught me how you just twist it. Just rip. He had, we had a session one night over supper about how to do that. Elisha's kind of an amazing prophet, isn't he? There, Elisha, one of the things that's amazing about him is even after he's dead, right? The guy gets thrown into the Elisha's grave and the guy comes back to life. That had to be a little startling. So, 
What else? What else do you notice in there? Yeah, you could definitely see Elisha was connected with God. Uh, People, sometimes people ask me, why do you think Elijah is more well-known than Elisha? And I I think there are a couple of reasons. We talked about a couple last week, but I think a couple others. One is because Elijah shows up again in the New Testament, and so he's there. Uh, Another is, I don't know that people know what to do with what Elisha does. I mean, it's making axe heads float. It's people falling into his... uh, grave and becoming alive again. I mean, it, it's not strange power, but it's like power that they don't know how to, that preachers don't know how to preach on. How do you preach on the axe head? Right? I mean, how do you draw principles out of that story? And they're not that they're not there, but it's it's easier to pull out of, call fire from heaven if you're connected to God, then God will show up. You know, I mean, it's, it's easier in that way. So, yeah. There was a god that was worshipped called Molech, and there were some others in that day and time, that child sacrifice was a part of the ritual. Now, part of that reason is um, they had lots of kids back then. I'm, I'm not saying it's right, but I mean they had, you know, today we're used to two and a half children per family, right? I mean, that's the average. Uh, but they had 12, 13 children, and so... That, that was you gave that into the, to the God. Now, one of the things that is clear throughout Scripture from beginning to end is God does not approve of that. The only place at Scripture at all where you can see any reference to it from one of God's people is Abraham and Isaac, but God spares Isaac. And so you have this idea that God is against that. Um, but they, there, were, there were a group of people called the Sumerians, not Sumerians, Sumerians. That some of the ancient civilizations, some of the forerunners of uh, gods like Baal and others, they they thought that in order to um, bring fertility to the land, you had to spill the blood of a living being. And the highest living being was human. And so human sacrifice became a part of that ritual. Or it was pretty early on in ancient Near East civilization. Well, and, well, and they just, yeah, they. I mean, you have evidence in Genesis that there are people that are practicing that. So, I mean, even in the beginning, beginning, you have those kind of issues. They, yeah, and, and you say, well, I mean, but the Israel, God's covenant with Israel involved animal sacrifice. Just humans weren't a part of it, and just other people thought, well, that's what we have to do. Um, th- part of that came from a worldview that we were the playthings of the gods. Um, that they, uh, you see this especially in Greek mythology, which kind of evolved from all that, where, you know, Zeus and Poseidon and all those gods are playing games and we're part of it and they're using us and that whole thing. And so they thought, well, if we're, if we need to satisfy the gods somehow, then we give them one of us. So, yes, we read about that this week, that one of them even went to that practice, yeah. They're all on the bad list, yes. There are not many on Santa's good list here. This is the naughty and nice list, right? And what you see is you see patterns that are hard to break, and you see partial obedience. Even some of those kings in the south where he was good, but not as good as David. Not like David, but like his dad. And so so then when you get to Hezekiah, and it says he was good like his ancestor David, doing right in all that he did. Well, 
we, we know that David didn't do right in everything he did, but the idea is that he sought the Lord completely. Um, and so it's important to see the differences there. Right. But what it shows is we, we in America are kind of immune to this because of the system of government that we've put together. We have peaceful transition of government uh, through an election, and we choose the next one. And even if we don't agree with who is elected, we're not going to go out, unless there aren't some crazy people, but we're not going to go out there and shoot them or say, I don't like the election results and do something violent. But in most of the history of the world, the way you became king, if you weren't king, you get enough people around you, and you knock off the king. And if you're the one that kills the king, you're in line. But part of that also comes from the northern kingdom. All those assassinations were primarily in the north. And that's because they didn't have, this is David's family that's going to come. So next in line was established. They had, well, whoever's got the most power up here can kind of grab it. And so you had that. But the north was dysfunctional for many, many years before they fell. Just, just to give you an idea, from 922, if you look on that chronology sheet, uh, from 922 or so is when they split off, right? 931. Um, 922 is kind of the date of when they were officially separated for good and, and everything was kind of gone. So from then until 722 when the Assyrians come, that's only 200 years. And in the a nation history, that's not a real long time. So not even as long, not even as long as America, I mean America's been a country longer than northern Israel was a country, Right? We've been a nation longer than that, and we are a young nation uh, when it comes to the world perspective. So, what else? Anything else stand out to you that you hadn't noticed before or just struck you in a different way? Just don't take from that right now that if you borrow somebody's axe and it falls in the water, call the preacher to come and get it to levitate out. All right? Miss Teresa? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, this is one of the most clear statements of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. I mean, you have that obvious picture in, in chapter 6, verse 16, where Elisha says, Don't be afraid, there are more. Verse 17, Then, O Lord, open their eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. He saw the hillside around Elisha filled with horses and chariots of fire. Now, that, mean, that doesn't mean there were literal horses and chariots of fire. That means that spiritually he saw God's army behind him. And so you have that. And then I just think it shows the graciousness of God. I mean, uh, and... and it's a welcome thing in the midst of everything else we've read. But what you always see in Scripture, I use the word always, what you mostly see in Scripture, is God is gracious towards people who don't know better. Now, He is not gracious towards people that are willingly worshiping false gods. But to people that He thinks there is a chance of reclamation or a chance of repentance, God takes the gracious route first, and if they don't accept, then judgment comes. And I, I think Elisha was just showing the graciousness of God in the midst of that. Well, I think that I think it's okay to pray that I think it's okay to pray in, from the perspective of Jesus is the Lord do whatever it takes to bring that person to faith in you, and that may not be all good may not be all roses. It may be difficulty and trials that come, but the ultimate goal is faith in you. And so whatever that means, God, 
Right. Right. And, and I think we pray the same thing for us. Lord, whatever it takes for me to draw closer to you, that's what I want to happen. Um, and so it's not just praying for them that, it's praying for us that, that we'll be drawn closer to them. How many of you knew that there were discussions of public toilets in the Old Testament, right? But it says it, doesn't it? They took the temple of Baal and they smashed it and they built a public toilet that's still used to this day. Now that was to their day, not to our day. What else? What else did you see in this litany of kings and their successes and failures? One of my favorite chapters in Scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. That's Isaiah's call to ministry, if you will. Anybody remember how that chapter starts? In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay? Now, that's one of those statements, if you don't understand what's going on, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How long did Uzziah reign? Fifty-two years. I want you to think about that for a minute. Somebody reigns in a country for 52 years. When they pass away, there is concern, right? And Uzziah was a pretty good king. He he didn't tear down all the Asherah poles. He didn't tear down all the temples. And so when you get Isaiah, I believe in Isaiah 6 when it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I think, and I think this is pretty good to be biblically backed up, is that when King Uzziah died, Isaiah went to the temple to say, what do we do now? What do I do now? That I, He ran to the temple, and as he went into the temple, God gave him this vision. And the point of that was that the nation of Israel needed some leadership and some guidance spiritually. So that's what leads to that verse towards the end of that that says, who shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Well, all that background is that you have the southern kingdom, Judah, in a time of great turmoil because their 52-year king. There would have been many people, most people in their country had never known another king. And so what do we do now kind of thing? I mean, we have term limits of eight years here in America. And so... Uh, and I, don't, I, I could count this up, but in my since 1976, I don't know how many presidents we've had, but we've had more than one, right? I think my math is good enough to do that. We've had several, probably seven, eight, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, maybe six. Um, six presidents in that time frame, and uh, that's just 34 years. We go back 52 years. We've probably we've had several more than that, and so when he dies, it was a it was a big moment. Anything else in Kings? Well, say that again, Miss Ann. On the 25th, where are you here? Well, just I think it's a get in and get out quickly kind of thing. I mean, what he's doing is a very dangerous thing. He's an, he's appointing a new king, and I mean that that's not going to be taken very well. And so it was a get in and get out kind of thing. Well, there's also there was also the chance he was going to go in there and do that, and the men that were around him weren't going to like that. He's not our king, and they were going to go after him. I mean, you're, he was establishing a new king spiritually for the nation. They were victims of, well, two things there, and I think this is just in general human knowledge that we have, not necessarily from what it explicitly says in Scripture. 
But generally, the kings were going to surround themselves with priests that told them what they wanted to hear. And priests that didn't say that weren't going to be around very long, and so they took care of themselves. Um, Now, you do have an example, and Wayne pointed this out earlier, that you've got the child king that's hidden. He's uh, put away because his mom's on a killing rampage, right? Um, And so they bring him out, and it gives this idea that the priest took him almost as his son and raised him, and he is the one of the... uh, did you get one of these, Denise? You didn't get one of these, did you? It's all the kings. Um, we got a few right there. Um, just because as you're looking at it, that was Joash. And if you notice, you had Jehoshaphat, but then you had, this is on the second page of this handout here. You had Jehoram and Haziah and Athaliah. And then you have Joash, who is the good king. He's the young one. And what you see is it's an interesting turn because you see finally the priest exerts the force that he should, grows this young king into a good king, and from there you have Joash and Amaziah, who's mostly good, and Uzziah, who's good, and Jotham, who's good. And you see that pattern really broken because one man said, I'm going to raise this kid the way he's ought to be raised. I mean, no seven-year-old kid is making the decisions to run a nation. I mean, if Eli Larson is making the decision to run a nation... Heaven help us. Although there might be something, I shouldn't say that. He might make some decisions better than what our government officials have made in the last several years. But he's not running the nation. So who's running the nation? Well, his advisors are. And it seems very clear that his advisor was this priest. And so you do have that in some ways. And you see that there were some that probably were just thinking, I'm going to keep my head down. And there are still some people here that are worshiping like they're supposed to, and I'm going to take care of them because if I make too much of a fuss about it, I'm going to be gone, and if I'm gone, there's nobody here to, to do that. But overall, the, the point of the nation, and, and back then, when you kind of touched on if they if, if the cow's not working, let's sacrifice the horse. If the horse is not working, let's... Back then, they were very much... If their crops weren't growing, okay, well, Yahweh helped us last year, but he's not helping us this year. Let's go see what Baal can do. So it was a very, I mean, this is hard to imagine, but they lived very much in the moment and from need to need. There's just happened to be a lot of other ways out there to try things out. Does that answer your question, Denise? Okay. Maybe one or two more. You got them. If not, we'll move on. And you, just to put that point home, you have... In 2 Kings 12.1, this great statement, All his life Joash did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. You know that that was the reason. If we could just pick out who the presidents were going to be 40 years from now and just let churches really put their lives into them, we could you know, do something 40 years from now. But I don't think we're electing a 7-year-old anytime soon. Well, here's the here's the difference mainly. This is talking about from his own country, from his own people. I mean, Amaziah is killing the people that killed his dad, that assassinated his dad. And so they would have been his own countrymen, his own people. And so he's not going to kill the, the children of his own people. When they went in to destroy a culture, 
no better way. To, I mean, there's no easy way to say that. But when they went in to destroy a culture of uh, misplaced worship, they destroyed the culture. Um, or when you have in the case of like King Ahab, who was the worst of the worst kings, and he says, do away with all of his family because none of them can ever have lay claim to the throne again. That was specific command of God. And so, um, but in their own country, it was in their covenant, their, their law, that you didn't pay for your dad's sins. Um, and does that make sense? In their culture. In their, so, kind of like, you, you, if, this is a bad analogy, but the United States says you can't kill a child for, for what their dad did. But we we go to um, Afghanistan and we bomb a terrorist house, and a child is inside. Well, we didn't. Today we would call that collateral damage, and nobody would want that necessarily. But it's a different thing. Well, you've got Hezekiah. We just read about um, today, right? Or yesterday? trying to get there. He was Ahaz's son. Yeah. It follows on this. Here's the thing you can know about Judah. Whoever the person is before them is their dad. So Ahaz was wicked. But it, but what you also see there is there's only from Jotham it is to Ahaz who's bad, but then you have Hezekiah that's good. I mean, they're, you know, they, they move. All right, let's go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. Paul and his prayer cloths. All right? What questions do you have, observations from the book of Acts? What's that? Say that again, Ms. Dottie. Yeah. He, we'll run into this very infrequently. But that, the earliest manuscript, the earliest copies of, of Acts do not have that verse there. What most people think is, because of what you just said, that well, Philip doesn't say he, he doesn't explicitly say that Philip, that the Ethiopian believed there. I mean, Philip's not going to baptize him unless he believes. Baptism doesn't, nowhere else do we see that he, he baptized unbelievers. And so, it, it's understood that he believed and then he was baptized. But there were people probably scribes later that said, well, people aren't going to get that, so let's add in there what Philip would have said to him. Right. And so that that was, that that verse, 30, I mean, if you look, if you're reading in the, the NIV, I'm looking at the NIV right now, but I think it's in the New Living that way too. It just goes from verse 34, 35, 36, 38. Right? That's because 37, most and this is people that believe the Bible, everything in the Bible is true, say that verse 37 wasn't originally there, that that was added later on um, by people that were trying to explain it better. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Now, here's the reality. It doesn't change any meaning of the story, if it's there or if it's not. So, All right, other question in Acts. We'll do a we'll do a session on biblical criticism some night, and I will put you all to sleep, including myself. Why does it go from that? Because verse thirty-seven. Here's the thing: when they wrote the Bible, they had no verse numbers. 
none. That was a later edition, much later, um, after translation into English later. So when most earliest manuscripts of this book, the earliest copies of Acts that we have, do not have verse 37. It just reads like you read it here. Okay, So later, when scribes are writing this out, uh, almost like a commentary, they say, we need to add in there, he told him to believe, and if he believed, then he would be saved. Which, if you read that verse, uh, it, it just is like it's a conversion thing, is what it is. And they want to make that clear. And so somebody, not with ill intent or bad intent, just we're going to put that in there. And so they stuck it in there. And then later when they came along and numbered it, that just happened to be verse 37. And so when the New Living or the New International Version goes back and assesses all of it and says, the best reading of this is without verse 37 in. They just have to take verse 37 out. But that doesn't change the numbering of everything else that's been in traditionally there. Because if we've got different Bibles, and I tell you to turn to 836, or I mean 842, they don't want your numbers to be different than everybody else's numbers. Yes, it does. And the King James Version, uh, while very poetic, is not based on the best manuscript. All right, other questions in Acts. You get the sense that Paul is an all-or-nothing kind of guy. You're either with us or you're not. And Paul, apparently, you, what you have is two different kind of personalities, too. You've got Paul who, and I put this on my Facebook today, one of my favorite quotes in this book is, if anybody else goes to hell, it's not my fault. Because I've done what I'm supposed to do. It's their fault. And, I, and he doesn't say, I mean... But he says it kind of bluntly. There, there are moments, and we'll get into his letters, when he, he basically, if you translate it in the vernacular of their day, he comes as close as you can to be saying R-rated words without saying R-rated words. He seems to be a very fiery personality. I mean, even before he was saved, he was killing Christians. So he's a fiery personality. And you got Barnabas, who, that's not his name. Barnabas isn't his name, it's his nickname. Because the word Barnabas means son of encouragement. So you got this nickname guy, Barnabas, who is an encourager. Paul, come on, we've got to encourage, we've got to help this kid. And Paul's like, I ain't got time to deal with the kid. i got to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if he's going to play around and figure out if he wants to do it or not, he's going to have to do it on somebody else's time. So I think it's just a difference of personality. And nobody really knows fully what happened. We see by the end of Paul's life that there's reconciliation there. And Barnabas takes him under his wing. And, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and he's, he'll say in the book of Galatians, one of, my, one of the most interesting things that people are going to skip over is that Paul, he says, I confronted Peter face to face. I would have loved to have been a part of that conversation. Because it, in the Gospels, Peter never backs down to anybody. And he apparently backed down to Paul. Now, you just think about all the things you see about Peter. In the, now he was obviously humbled at the resurrection, but if Paul could make... I mean, we all know people in our lives that win every argument they're a part of, whether they ought to or not. Because they can... And I'm not just talking about all our wives, men. I'm talking about, you know, people. You know, because they can talk louder or 
faster or whatever. They can just out-talk anybody. And Peter was kind of that guy. And Paul beats him at his own game. So, But also, Paul was not apparently a popular speaker. He wasn't great speaking. They fell asleep and died, right? That's a, fell out a three-story window and died. I mean, preaches till the morning comes. That's right. Come on. Ain't no commotion here. Y'all get back up on that roof. We got more to talk about. That's what... I don't want to hear any complaints about what time we get out of any service when Paul's preaching from midnight to dawn, right? Well, now that one came from the command of Jesus when he sent out the disciples. But he's, he, he didn't have... Paul, you see very clearly, Paul had a mission. And his mission was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you can almost see Paul saying to some of the, the disciples, Listen, he told y'all to go to the ends of the earth. What are you doing sitting around Jerusalem? What are you doing? we got to get to the ends of the earth. You get the feeling, and this is the one where he gets called back to Jerusalem. You get the feeling that's a very reluctant. He's not, he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem. But I've got to. I don't know what the Lord's got, but all I know is when I go into a town, he tells me I'm going to get beaten up and try to get killed and get mobbed after me. But I'm going because he wants to get. Now, one of the things that will inform the second part after he gets to Jerusalem and goes back on his last mission trip. In their day and time, there was a literal end of the earth, a place called the end of the earth, and it was in Spain. And so for Paul, his idea is to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. You use the word dogmatic. I'll use the word literal. Jesus said we go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to Spain. And so that is his life mission, and he doesn't have time for anything else. Was it, which is admirable that he doesn't let things get in his way. I mean, he, he's the one that will say in 1 Corinthians, I, I wish everybody was single like me so they could focus on this instead of having to focus on family. Well, yeah, his, his relations with females may not have been real good. Yeah. Well, and you see, you also see in Paul... I mean, he literally says, if I could give back my salvation so that my brothers in Israel could be saved, I would. And he says that in one of his epistles. I mean, think about that. He says, if it would mean that I wouldn't be saved, if my country would be saved. Now, I was thinking about that verse the other day. How much, would it, how much compassion and love would it take for me to say, if I wish everyone in Goodlesville would be saved, even and if it meant giving up mine, I'm fine with that. That's and so you have Paul as this very dogmatic, very rigid person, but he also has a heart. I mean, I mean, what drives him, what compels him, is his love for Christ and his love for people. And so it, it's easy sometimes to kind of paint Paul as this, you know, get things done without the compassion in there. But it was still there. Other things in Acts. Somebody mentioned, I mean, I just love, what I do love, we mentioned this last week in Acts 15, but I don't think we talked about it. Verse 2 in Acts 15 where he says, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them vehemently, strongly. Um, Let's see if there's something else. Oh, there's a verse that in my Ph.D. studies we spent a lot of time on, and I want to find it and read it correctly. It was in yesterday's. Um, it was on the 29th. It's Acts 19. 
you have this strange thing where Paul is on his healing and casting out tour. And he gets to, it tells us in chapter 19 that you have this group of Jews traveling around trying to cast out demons by saying, I commend, with this incantation. Now those words are chosen specifically because they had no connection to the Jesus that they're talking about. They just think these words have power. And it says, I command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches to come out. Okay? So they're trying to use Jesus and Paul. They thought there was power in the name. In verse 14, seven sons of Siva, leading priests, were doing this. Verse 15, but one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied. Now think about how cringe-inducing this would be. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Now, I mean, that sounds like something out of a bad horror movie, doesn't it? I mean, a spirit speaks. But the point there is, the power did not come from using a certain word. The power came from the relationship to Jesus Christ. And that Paul's power developed from that. We were in PhD studies, and uh, my, uh, the guy that is supervising my dissertation and is the coordinator of the program has made his living on spiritual warfare. We did a study of his when I was here not long um, about Chuck Lawless. His uh, dissertation was on spiritual warfare. He's written on spiritual warfare. And he says, I'm one of these guys that's an expert on spiritual warfare, but I ask myself constantly, am I a guy that's engaging in the work of the Lord? And if I were to run into a situation and confront spiritual warfare head on, would the evil spirit know who I was because of the work I was doing? Or am I an unknown in the spiritual world? And he said, the question that ought to haunt us all is that we ought to have our name known in the spiritual world for the work that we're doing. And how many of us would they say, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, and who are you? And what authority do you have? So it's, a, it's just a haunting little passage. Um, not long after that is that passage where they rise up and they're going to kill him because uh, Paul's messing up the worship of their goddess and all of that. But you just see this real spiritual warfare. And I, and I hope you've seen, we're, we're halfway through the Bible. Y'all know that, right? We're, as of Friday, officially, we will be, we're actually more than halfway because you've after Friday, you have read all of the Psalms. So you're more than halfway through the Bible. And you cannot, when you read the Bible like we are, you see spiritual warfare interspersed everywhere. And physical warfare informed by spiritual warfare. Why did those kings keep attacking northern Israel? Because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do with the Lord. You got Elisha we talked about. You got Paul here that is confronting Things. And so it's a, uh, it's just a, a recurrent motif throughout. Other things in the book of Acts. Paul's farewell speech, and some of you may not be all the way caught up today, but Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesians, uh, the, their leaders, is just a, uh, I love, I just love it. When he, uh, he just talks to them. That's where he tells them, I know that none of you to whom I preach the kingdom will ever see me again. I mean, Paul feels like this is the last time. And I declare today I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink. So guard yourselves in God's people. Um, he, he talks just lovingly. I entrust to you, to God, and the message of His grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those He has set apart for Himself. Um, verse 36 says, of this is chapter 20 of Acts, 
When he finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They cried and they embraced and they kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said they would never see him again. And they escorted him down to the ship. And so in that moment, with everything we've talked about, Paul, you get this real sense of humanity. This, this guy that just wanted to stop by and see his friends one more time because he doesn't think he'll ever see him again. And this moment of kind of saying goodbye. Just a heartfelt moment. All right, what about Psalms or Proverbs? Anything there you see? Yes, you may. What verse What verse are you in there? I don't have anything there, so I don't know. Your, your note says what? A quote from... What version are you in the... Uh, yeah, what version are you in? NIV. All right, let me look at my NIV. Reminds New Living. First Clement is an apocryphal book. It just means it's a book that is known but not used. Uh, you must have a good study Bible. I'll look that up, Miss Teresa. Figure it out. Because I don't have it in either one of mine. Is yours a study Bible? Okay. All right. Psalms, Proverbs, anything there? Favorite proverb of the week? I think Proverbs 18.2 has much to say to our culture, which is fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Right? We have a lot of opinion airing in our society. Yesterday's Proverbs 18.4, wise words are like deep waters. Wisdom flows from the wise like a bubbling brook. Deep waters for them would have had more meaning than us because deep waters meant that it was a continual source of water. It was replenishing always. They looked for those deep wells, deep waters to be able to draw from. All right, anything else? All right, July 2nd is the midpoint of the year. So we're halfway there. No quitting now. So if you're a little behind, this is a good weekend to catch up a little bit. Uh, some of you have mentioned you're a week, you're a week or two weeks behind. A couple of things that, because of the way we're doing it now, and we're having this discussion on Wednesday night, an idea you might try is reading where you are, and then today's reading. Okay, and so if you're two weeks behind, that would be uh, June, whatever, 16th, and June 30th. If that makes sense, and you you will miss a little in there possibly, but you'll be able to put it together, and that will give you the ability to discuss and ask questions where we are week to week. Okay. If you're not behind, just keep going. If you're three months behind, just pick up where we are and finish that later, all right? 